Well, over the Christmas break, I had the opportunity to listen to a lecture by a guy named Alan Noble, who's a professor at one of the colleges in Oklahoma. Over the course of this lecture, Alan Noble introduced me to a term that I'd never heard before. The term is zucosis. Maybe you recognize it. Zucosis is a mental illness that animals get when they're held in captivity. In all likelihood, if you've ever been to a zoo, you've seen an animal uh, with zucosis. You look at a lion or a tiger or a bear or an elephant um, pacing back and forth, sort of like walking around in like this constant like sort of circle. Right? You, I'm, I see tracks here. It's similar to that. You can imagine like grass everywhere, but in this oval, there's just nothing but like a dirt ring. And as you watch this animal pacing back and forth, you can deduce that this animal has been walking around in this circle for, I don't know, forever? It's really sad. Alan Noble went to Baylor University, and the mascot for Baylor uh, is the bears. A long time ago, the university kept uh, a couple of bears in a bear pit. It was literally just a concrete pit in the ground. Somebody came along and they said, look, we can do better than this. Let's intentionally design the best environment that we can uh, for these bears. So they brought in bear experts and people who are like experts at creating like habitats and they spe- uh, and they created this bear pit specially designed for the Baylor bears. They installed a waterfall, they put in some branches, they created sort of special sections for the bears to lounge in and hang out in. They dumped in a bunch of toys. But still, after all of the modifications that they made, the Baylor bears still just walked in circles all day long. Why? The answer is relatively simple. It's because at the end of the day, a bear pit is still a bear pit. And bears are not meant to live in a pit. So said, almost everyone who's visited a zoo has seen an animal suffering from zucosis. I mentioned the telltale, sort of anxious pacing back and forth. But there are other symptoms as well. Obsessive grooming, eating disorders, self-mutilation, boredom, malaise, a hollow blank stare. In the end, what do zoologists do who are supposed to care for these animals? By their own admission, there's not much you can do, right? What they do, for an animal that's experiencing zucosis, what they do is they they shoot them up with a bunch of antidepressants, and they give them enrichments, things like toys and balls, really anything to keep them distracted, sort of anything to keep their minds off the fact that they are in a pit, In this lecture, and in his book, You Are Not Your Own, this same guy, Alan Noble, he makes the point that it's not just lions and tigers and bears, etc., that experience zucosis. He says we are all experiencing it too. Us human beings. We are like lions living in a cage. Lions in captivity who have forgotten what it means to uh, to be a lion. We in the modern West, we have forgotten what it means to be fully human. We are living in an environment that we're not really made for. Bo Burnham, in his Inside Special, teases out the inhumanity of life in the modern world. Right? A, a world where we get hooked to our devices at like the age of two. And we're sort of pressured to live our life online. He concludes that special, right? Like putting his arms up and saying, right, all eyes on me, right? It's very much a song a lion could sing. 
all eyes on me, feeling exposed, feeling trapped, feeling bored and restless and numb. You and I might not literally pace in circles, but sometimes it feels like our life is doing just that, just sort of going around in circles. People everywhere and people all around you, they're feeling anxious and indecisive and depressed. See, in the zoo, they dish out antidepressants and toys to distract them. In our society, we do much the same, right? We dish out some pills. We dish out some pornography. Here's an iPhone 12. Here's a PlayStation 5. Welcome to RUF. (laughs) Sorry, it's not going to be this depressing the whole way through, I promise. But the first question that I want to ask and answer tonight is how do we end up here? Like, how did we end up in a society where people are experiencing essentially zucosis? How did we wind up on this side of the cage? And what's more, is there any way out? Is there any way for us to experience the good life, which is to say life as it was meant to be lived, the kind of life for which we were made for? I want to cover all that tonight. But let's start with this first question. How did we wind up here? On the very first page of the Bible, like page one, we're introduced to a God who creates a very good, beautiful, and orderly world. He plants a garden in the east, it's called Eden, and he puts the very first image bearers in the midst of that garden. And there in this garden, Adam and Eve are naked and they're not ashamed. They experience a right and harmonious relationship with God, with each other, and with the created world around them. Genesis 1 and 2, pages 1 and 2 of the Bible, they give us a virtual tour, as it were, of the kind of environment that you and I were made for. Some of you did that with UVM from home, like you took a virtual tour of this campus. I've seen some, uh, some folks here who are advocates, they, I've seen, you know, people give these virtual tours, but that's sort of what page one and two of the Bible are for you. They're like a virtual tour of the world for which you are made, the kinds of relationships, the kind of environment that you belong in. But that's just page one and two. On page three, Genesis three, the Bible explains all that's gone wrong. If you're doing this daily Bible reading sort of project that we're encouraging folks to do, we have some handouts there on the table. It's like 100 readings to get us through like the 100 days of the semester. This is what you would have read yesterday. This is the story uh, that went with yesterday. And it's a story that you're likely familiar with. A slippery figure, shadowy figure, he invades God's garden. It's a snake representing an ancient enemy, the liar, the accuser, the devil in disguise. The Satan slides up next to Adam and Eve, and he whispers a half-truth into their ears. Did God really say you cannot eat from any tree in the garden? One chapter earlier, God said they could eat from every tree in the garden except for one. And Eve says as much. But then she adds, and we can't even touch it lest we die. God didn't say that. The devil responds, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. The deception works in the end. The snake's poison enters the bloodstream. It it penetrates their hearts. The lie of the devil is not God does not exist. Even that's a whopper. 
The lie the devil tells is that God is not good. It's fine for you to believe in him as far as the devil's concerned. He's there all right. It's just that he's not good. And he's not loving. The insinuation of the devil is that God is not good, he's not loving, and he doesn't want what's best for you. That even though you're made in his image, he doesn't actually want you to be like him. Believe me, the devil says, in order for you to live the good life, in order for you to live a truly happy human life, you need to take your life into your own hands. You need to do what's best for you. You do you. You should be free to live however you want, so long as you don't hurt anybody. Don't let anyone stand in the way of your happiness. Follow your heart. Write your own rules. Speak your own truth. Eat this fruit. And you know how the story goes. Adam and Eve eat the fruit. And when we are faced with the same temptations to do so, we do as well. They and we were promised autonomy, and what we get is alienation. We're promised happiness, and what we get instead is shame and blame. We're promised the good life, but we experience death. Death that starts on the inside, but becomes death on the outside, as all of our relationships begin to fall apart. It doesn't take long before liberation begins to feel more and more like captivity. Zucosis sets in. This is the story that's alluded to and summarized for us in verses 1, 2, and 3 of our passage tonight. You have it printed there on your handout. I'd love for you to follow along because I'm going to reread the first three verses. Please follow along. It starts this way. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the whole of mankind or like the rest of mankind. If we follow the order, like the logic of the argument in verses 1, 2, and 3, zucosis, right, our experience of zucosis, it sets in when we follow the course of this world, verse 1, or verse 2, okay? When we go along with a world that tolerates God's existence but denies his relevance for everyday living, Zucosis sets in. Right? When we walk in the ways of our hypermodern sexual and secular culture, that in and through countless stories and movies and ads reiterates that in order for us to live the good life, you need to follow your heart. That you just need to love yourself and then you're set. That you must give full expression to what you feel inside, and if you don't, you're either repressed or oppressed. That Allah Elsa, there's no right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Now, mind you, all of this isn't a logical argument. Right? The course of this world is not a set of rational beliefs. The course of this world is more of a mood. It's more of an atmosphere. It's more the air that we breathe. As Eugene Peterson puts it, the course of this world is an airborne pollutant that we inhale every day. It's an anti-God impulse that circulates in our bodies and in our lungs. It's the sea that we're swimming in. 
This sort of cultural environment is the weedscape that is sown by the devil. The prince of the power of the air, a.k.a. the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, right? Verse 2. Now, for some of you, belief in the devil may seem like a superstition or an old wives' tale, but let me just push back on that belief for a little bit. I think we all intuit that there is real radical evil in the world, which explains why we have sort of an obsession with horror movies in our culture. I think we all sense that there really is like an evil force out there. We just don't have, I don't know, um, a background beliefs that support it. We live in a secular world that denies the existence of demons. So our only recourse is to demonize one another. But look at what that's doing to our culture. We're seeing the toxic effect of that is having on our politics and our discourse and our prospects of peace. Right? If there's no demons, then we have to just demonize each other. It's not working. We all intuit that there is actually something more fundamentally wrong, I think. Two, in the words of Kaiser Soze, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he does not exist. What if instead of spinning heads and spewing slime all of the exorcists, the devil operated more like a Russian hacker spy, sort of spewing disinformation and lies from like an underground basement? What if that's all it took to actually like turn our world upside down and inside out? You don't need like people crawling on walls. You just need lies coming out of an underground basement. Thirdly, if you're a follower of Jesus, and I'm not assuming everyone is, but if you are a follower of Jesus and you take Jesus at his word, then you're going to trust what he says about the the devil too. And Jesus certainly believed in the devil's existence. Jesus talks more about the devil than anybody else in the Bible. Because as far as he's concerned, the devil is not only real, he's the biggest threat to your living the good life, which is why you need to take him seriously. And it's why you actually need to pay attention to sort of the way he works. After all, you are defenseless against an enemy that you don't acknowledge exists. In his excellent book, Live No Lies, by John Mark Comer, uh, he writes this. He says, lies that come in the form of deceptive ideas are the devil's primary method of enslaving human beings and entire human societies in a vicious cycle of ruin that leads us further and further east of Eden. But these lies, they're not like random untrue facts with like no emotional value. It's not like the devil is going around and being like, hey, Elvis is alive. <laughs> Believe me. <laughs> like that's not how he operates. Like that's not the kind of lie the devil is going around whispering in people's ears. Elvis is alive or Tupac is alive. Like nobody cares, right? Instead, the devil crafts lies like a a tailor crafts a suit, and he inserts those lies when we're most vulnerable to them. Ultimately, he wants to play on our self-centered passions and desires, right? You see this in verse 3. As Comer explains, lies like Elvis is alive or birds aren't real, they have no emotional bearing on our life, but what about this kind of lie? 
the kind of lie that says like, hey, you deserve to be happy and let's face it, you haven't been happy in your marriage for years. Your wife isn't the right fit for you. And it happens, John. You married way too young before you were self-aware. And this marriage just isn't what you hoped it would be. But if you were to divorce her, I'm sure you would find someone else who would be a better fit and who would make you happy. As you can imagine, only a few conspiracy theorists fall for the Elvis kind of lie. But many of us are vulnerable to the second kind. And we are swimming in a sea of those kinds of lies. Lies that are picked up, repeated, and then normalized by our society at large. To use imagery from the story of the sower, these are the weeds that are slowly encroaching on our lives and choking out the life that God wants to grow in us. To borrow language from Alan Noble, right? It's when we follow the course of this world, when we follow the lies of the devil, which play to our desires. When we do that, zucosis sets in. We find ourselves in a cage of our own making. Again, promised autonomy, winding up alienated. Promised happiness, winding up on antidepressants and on our iPhones all the time. Just look at some of the effects that are listed in Ephesians 2. One of the conditions that is described early on is sort of captivity and bondage, verses 2 and 3. We're separated from our true home. We're alienated, verse 11. We are hopeless, verse 11. We are like the walking dead, verse 1. This is before zombie literature, right? Or the living dead. When I think of the walking dead, I think of that lion in a cage. I think of something that actually has life in its body, but it's not the way, it's, it's not what it's supposed to be. That lion is dead inside. It's not a real lion anymore. It's a lion in captivity. Something in it has died. It's walking dead. And that is what we are when we believe the lies of the devil, when we sort of go about sort of like trapped in like our zucosis state. We're human beings who have forgotten what it means to be fully human. We're walking dead. We're not the ways we're really supposed to be. We're not experiencing the life that God intended for us from the beginning. We're dead inside. Zucosis. This is our condition. And if our hyper-individualistic and autonomous way of life and spurned on by the devil's lies, reinforced by our culture, got us in this mess. Is there a way out of it? Is there any hope for us? Let's pick up where we left off, starting in verse 4. It says here, but God, which is like the greatest conjunction in the Bible, right? But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Just hear this again. But God, being rich in mercy, right, being full of compassion, Because of the great love with which he loved us. 
right? Even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we were stuck and going nowhere in shadows of our truest selves, at that very moment, right, this very God, he made us alive together with Christ. Right? By grace, you have been saved. By grace, you have been saved. Let's underline this. You're getting well and living the good life does not begin with you picking yourself up by your bootstraps. Right? By grace, you've been saved. Salvation is something that God has done for you. It is something that he initiates. Your salvation is a rescue operation that is motivated by mercy and by love. It's like a compassionate zoo goer who sees this zoo coast lion sort of just pacing around in circles in the cage. And he has compassion on him and says, I've got to get him out of there. This rescue mission is not earned by you or by the lion. It is not a consequence of you doing all the right things or checking all the boxes or making the grade. You were dead in your sins and trespasses, remember? Right? This has nothing to do with you and your goodness or lack thereof. Instead, this rescue mission has everything to do with God and his goodness, his compassion, his love, his mercy. Right? You don't earn this. You receive it. You embrace it. You live into it. By grace, you have been saved. Saved, a word that could just as well be translated, set free, delivered. You've been saved, set free, delivered from a life that is marked by zucosis, and you have been saved, set free, and delivered for something else entirely. Life as it was meant to be lived. We've been set free from a self-centered and ultimately inhuman existence. We have been set free from the lie that the good life comes to those who write their own rules. Uh, the lie that we don't, those who don't sacrifice their happiness for anything or anyone, who keep all their options open all the time and who follow their heart wherever it leads. We know how that story ends. It winds up in a cage of our own making. All eyes on me constantly needing to make myself and prove myself and justify myself and defend myself, constantly having to chase that next high, constantly second-guessing if we've made the right choice or if we would have been that much happier if we were someplace else, with someone else, or were ourselves somebody else. We've been set free from all of that. Friends, for freedom, Christ has set you free. He sets you free from that kind of existence. You do not have to live that way anymore. I know some students who think, great, Jesus saved me. That means I can keep living a hedonistic, autonomous, me-first life that I've always known. Only now I can just sort of have like Jesus' favor sprinkled on top. When you think like that, do you realize what you're doing? You're acting like a lion still in a cage, and you're sort of treating Jesus as an antidepressant. Right? I can just keep living the life that I've always known, sort of life trapped in this cage, but now I've got Jesus as an antidepressant, or I've got Jesus as a distraction, just something to keep me entertained while I keep going about life as usual. 
And no wonder Jesus and his way seems so dissatisfying. That kind of spirituality represents a false salvation. And fake salvation sucks. For freedom, Christ has set you free. Not just freedom from a Zucos life, but freedom for a new way of living. Which is actually an old way of living because it was the original way. The freedom to live in a right relationship with God and a right relationship with the people around you, and even a right relationship with the created world. Freedom to live a Jesus-shaped life, to love deeply and richly, to know and to be fully known. This is the environment that you were made for, and this is the environment that you were saved for. I felt it important for us to read most of chapter 2 tonight and include those later verses in your handout. Now, there is a ton to unpack here, and I don't have time to like do justice to the fullness of Ephesians 2. Honestly, Sarah Jane's Bible study on Ephesians that's meeting on Tuesday nights at 7, like that is a great place for you to go and to dig deeper into this text. It's amazing. But the reason I included these other verses, namely 11 through 19, is because I want you to see that when the Bible talks about your salvation, it's not just talking about the forgiveness of your sins, as awesome as that is. Salvation means restoration. Salvation means reconciliation. It means the end of isolation and alienation. It means the end of an atomistic, autonomous way of being. It means the end of being an island. It means finding yourself now a part of the main. It means an end of being an orphan, and it means finding yourself in a family. It means no longer being a stranger to God and to others, but being a friend. It means no longer being an alien, but a citizen of a new kingdom, citizen in a new kind of community. I want you to look at verses 18 and 19 with me. It says, For through him, that is through Jesus, we both, that means Jew and Gentile, everybody, we all, we have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. And you are members now of the household of God. Y'all, this is the kind of life that you were made for. And this is the kind of life you were saved for. A life to be lived in community. And specifically, a community that is called the church. Okay, a community that has as its head God our Father, and whose members are called brothers and sisters. Right? A family. Practically speaking, how can we help you live into this new reality? If you have put your faith and trust in Jesus, this is your inheritance. This is what you have been saved for. Coming to RUF is a great start. Okay, RUF is not the church, but we are, help, we are here to help you get connected to the church. You may or may not know this, but Burlington, Vermont is one of the least church cities in America. It's one of the least religious cities in America, according to polls. But that said, there are still good churches in this area, and we would love to help you find one and connect with it. If you go to our website, it sounds silly saying something like this, but go to 
rufuvm.org, right? It's org, right? Not com, it's .org. <laughs> That's embarrassing, <laughs> right? Yeah, rufuvm.org. Click the resources tab. We have a list of like local churches in the area uh, that RUF students have attended. It's a great place to start. I'd say a better place to start is to turn to the person next to you. See if the person next to you is going to church on Sunday and if, they would, if you could go with them. And if no one around you is going to church, why don't you just be like, hey, let's go and do this together. This could be awkward for the two of us. It'll be less awkward because we're going with someone, you know, with somebody else. Like, the, the folks around you are people that you can begin to do this with. I realize that for some, the thought of going to church or going back to church can be hard to wrap your mind around. It's something new or unfamiliar. Or maybe it's too familiar and it's hurtful. For others, you just want to sleep in on Sunday. I hope to address your questions and fears, concerns, and objections in the weeks to come. Um, I have and have had my own. Okay? And I think that will come out as we, we, we go through this together. Um, church is a beautiful and broken community, just like everybody in this room. We're all beautiful, broken people. And when you add a bunch of beautiful, broken people, you get a, a beautiful, broken thing called the church. Right? But I am convinced, and the Bible's witness about this is unequivocal, that if you want to live the good life, you have to join yourself to the church. That the good life cannot be lived, uh, the good life cannot be found, it cannot be lived alone. That the environment for which you were made, the thing that you were made for and saved for, is to belong to a community like this, to be in a right relationship with God and other people. Let me close with this image. It's a video. You can fire this up in a second. You know, we started tonight with kind of a depressing note, you know, talking about lions and cages and its similarities to life in the modern secular world. And I want to conclude tonight with this clip. It's a little dated. It's, I think, from the 70s, so just going to have to see past that. I want to show this to you because I, I saw this a couple of years ago, and I think it really is a hopeful and beautiful depiction of what salvation can look like and feel like. I want you to see this with your eyes and not just have, having heard it with your ears. I want you to see yourself in a story and to know what's possible. Let me just give you a little bit of background before we like cue it. In 1969, John Rendell and Aceberg, they saw a lion cub for sale. It was cramped and it was lonely in a small cage and so they had decided to adopt this lion. A local priest allowed them to exercise the lion cub, which they named Christian, on the church grounds, but the lion very quickly grew and it became too big for their flat. So the only thing they could do was to try to reintroduce this lion. It was like an environment that it wasn't made for. They they, they decided we have to bring this back into the environment for which it was made, back in Africa, and they did this. Now, a year later, they wanted to visit him, but they were told that he was completely wild and that they wouldn't remember him. Again, I want to conclude tonight with this clip because I think it really is a hopeful and beautiful depiction of what salvation can look like and feel like, and I want you to see yourself in this kind of story and for you to know what's possible. 